Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Since it came into office, the Trump administration has worked on what's referred to as the deal of the century between the Israelis and Palestinians. If reports are true about the deal, it would look a lot like previous attempts at a two-state solution. A report in the Times of Israel recently said we can expect the deal of the century after the Israeli elections in April. Interestingly, polls say that public support for a two-state solution is down among Israelis, Palestinians, and Americans. A poll from the University of Maryland last fall shows that a one-state solution is in a dead heat with a two-state solution among U.S. citizens. Israeli activist Jeff Halper is in town to talk about his vision of what a one-state solution would look like. He is speaking at Euclid Avenue Methodist Church in Oak Park tomorrow night. Jeff is an anthropologist and co-founder of the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions, which he founded in 1997. Great to see you, Jeff Halper. Thanks for having me on. Uh, what When people say one-state solution, the, a lot of people say, well, we got a one-state solution now mm-hmm. that looks like this, yeah, and right. then it can look like any number of things, mm-hmm. and from here to to, to one state with uh, all right. these people going around in it. What, right. what is your vision of a one-state solution? Well, first of all, let me say that we in the Israeli peace camp supported the two-state solution for many years. We're not against that. It wasn't fair and just, but the Palestinians accepted it 30 years ago. And uh, the international community accepts it. The Arab League accepted it. The U.S. accepted it. So we, we were okay with that. But simply over the years with the Israeli settlement process, there's almost 800,000 Israelis that today live in the Palestinian territory, which is a territory the size of Rhode Island. So, you know, put a million uh, Israelis in Rhode Island and and the Rhode Islanders have have been pushed out. So basically we're saying the two-state solution is gone because Israel settled the area that would have been a Palestinian state and you're not going to get them out. So well, I mean, the, the, the Trump administration will offer annexation to all the big Israeli settlements right, exactly. on the border, and then, right. then then you've got yeah. um, what's left is still ninety five percent of yeah. Palestinian territory, right. things like that. All right, let me tell you exactly what Trump and Israel want. Think of Rhode Island, because the, the West Bank and Gaza are the size of Rhode Island, not the biggest state in the union. Okay, the Palestinian areas, Gaza, and what we call areas A and B in the West Bank, the Trump would, uh, would make it into a Palestinian state, are 40% of Rhode Island. They're 40% of the occupied territories. And they're divided today into 164 little islands. So let's say you put them together a little bit. Um, so maybe you've got uh, 50 islands in which it's true, 95% of the Palestinians are confined. So you take, and that's about 5 million people. So you put 5 million people in 50 islands on 40% of Rhode Island, and you get an idea of how viable this plan really is going to be. All right. So if, if that doesn't work, um, what's your vision of a two-state solution? Right. People talk about a binational solution. Right, they, right. A one-state. One state, yes. No, so what we're saying is there already is one state. Right. It's de facto. There's, you know, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, there's only one effective government, the Israeli government. It's not the Palestinian Authority. There's only one army. You can't get into the country from any direction without going through Israeli border controls. There's one currency. There's one infrastructure. There is one country, and it's an apartheid state. 
because you have one country with one ruling power and two different uh, legal regimes, one for Israelis and one for Palestinians who aren't citizens. So that's untenable. What we're saying is, okay, let's go with the flow. Israel created one state. It did that deliberately, systematically over the last 50 years with its settlements. Okay, we accept that. But it can't be an apartheid state, obviously. So our job is crystal clear. It's to take the one apartheid state that Israel created and transform it into a democratic state of equal rights for all its citizens, which shouldn't be such a hard sell in the United States, a democracy. Seems everybody likes equal rights. That's but right. isn't the whole point of Israel being a Jewish state that you want – the Jewish That's people right. there want to have the Jewish state? And but if then anything with, else is destruction uh, okay, of the Jewish state. Fine. But then go with the two-state solution. With the two-state solution, you could have had a Jewish state on 78 percent of the country. And, and you would have been home free. Everybody would have recognized you. It would have been great. 30 years ago, imagine 30 years ago, we could have, been, could have had that. Israel said no, because Israel wants the whole thing. So Israel for the last 50 years and 67 has been systematically settling the West Bank and creating facts on the ground. We call it facts on the ground. That, that eliminate the possibility of a Palestinian state. So you can't, you can't take all, you know, between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River, the population has a majority Palestinian population. So you can't take all the territory and rule permanently over, over five to six million Palestinians and still want a Jewish state. It just doesn't compute. Jeff, in one of our previous interviews, and you're originally from Minnesota, and you right. went to live in Israel, and I asked you why, and you said, well, Jewish life in the United States was not chicken soup enough. <laughs> you wanted to live in a place where it was a little more chicken soup, and that was Israel. That's right. Do you get that in your one-state solution? Do you st- can yes. people still have the chicken soup? Yes, because <clears throat> the idea is um, it would be a constitutional democracy. Equal rights for everybody, one citizenship, one parliament, one election, just like this country. But it's true that you've got national groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, so that we would – the constitution in our plan would provide for the – to respect the collective rights of everyone. In other words, you have a right to be Israeli, speak Hebrew. Nobody's going to close the Hebrew university. You can live wherever you want to in the country. On the contrary, you even have more – a freedom to live where you want to than you have today. Palestinians have their space. In other words, it can be a multicultural democracy. There's no contradiction. Does everybody want that? It seems like everybody does not want to live with everybody else and live anywhere they want within right. this place. The Palestinians want that. Palestinians have always have always been in favor of one state. And Palestinians have no problem with, with Jews or Israelis living in, in that country. The problem has always been Israel because, because Israel and Zionism have always had an exclusive claim over the country. They claim this is the land of Israel and we're Judaizing the country. That's a term we use. We're transforming Palestine into the land of Israel. We're transforming an Arab country into a Jewish country. And in that formula, there's no place for non-Jews, you see. So it's really, it's really more of, of an Israeli problem. Um, and so what we have to simply say to Israel is no. You can stay there culturally 
and you're certainly a you know it's inclusive. You're part of the population, like the whites were a part have become a, a part of South Africa after the end of colonial apartheid. That that you can do, but it can't be a state that belongs to any particular people. It has to belong to its population. I'm talking with Jeff Halper. He is an Israeli activist. He co-founded the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions in 1997, and he's in Chicago talking about his vision of what a one-state solution would look like in Israel and Palestine. He's talking uh, tomorrow and o- tomorrow night in Oak Park. Um, now, Jeff, it, it, this doesn't seem to fly with what popular opinion wants in Israel. Mm. Popular opinion in Israel wants... You know, and keeps voting for politicians. That Israeli, in, popular Isra- Israeli popular opinion. Israeli popular opinion. And it's um, – they're voting for politicians that want a Jewish state, that right. are, are, are enforcing a Jewish state and are Not a Jewish state. The Jewish, Jewish state, state plus plus the occupied territories. They're voting for a greater land of Israel. You know, way beyond Israel. It's not a two – they're not voting for a two-state solution. They're voting for a settlement process. So, you know, the question is, okay, they can vote for that. I mean, the whites in South Africa wanted the apartheid as well. The question of the international community is, do we have to allow that? Just because Israelis want to control the whole country and make it a Jewish state and displace Palestinians or occupy Palestinians and give them second-class non-citizenship, do we have to agree to that simply because most Israelis want that? Uh, You know, it seems... It's like you disregard a binational state. A lot of That's people right. talked about That's a right. binational state as a kind of one-state solution, but also right. gives some division and some separation. Right. Right. Uh, what is wrong with a binational one-state solution? There's two things wrong with it. First of all, um, it's a little bit too much for the Palestinians. They're willing to accept the idea of collective rights because they know Israelis are there and will stay there. Nobody's going to throw them out. They'll be Israelis, and so they're they're willing to be inclusive. But to talk about binationalism for Palestinians means to legitimize Zionism, to legitimize what they see as settler colonialism by recognizing Israelis as a separate national group, and that they can't do. So they're willing to – collective rights is a compromise they can make. The other thing is, you see, our vision is really – you know, as we come together as, as one people, in other words, we're moving from an ethnic-based society of Jews and, and Arabs to a civil society like this country with citizens, with citizens. So as citizens begin to work together, go to school together, live together, intermarry, you'll have civil marriage that you don't have today in Israel. Uh, over two, three, four generations, a new civil society will emerge, a new society. And... That can be done on the basis of collective rights. In other words, like in this country, you can decide if you want to be Amish and live in an Amish community and marry Amish within your community. You can do that. Nobody says you can't within the framework of an American democracy. Or if you just want to be an American and fall in love with whoever you want to fall in love with, live wherever you want to live, you can do that too. And that's our vision. A new civil society where if you really want to be Israeli or you really want to be Palestinian within your religious community or whatever you want, you can do that. It's fine. You have that space. But to open the possibility that doesn't exist today of people actually coming together and creating something new. 
Well, it seems like this is um, probably a hard sell in Israel. Mm. Your, your, yes. your, your camp is small. How do you make your vision fly if you think you've got a good one? Well, sometimes you have a situation where the local population can't solve its own problem. You had that in South Africa when the whites were not able to overthrow apartheid. You had that in Serbia where they weren't able to make peace with the other peoples in the, in the region. And it's the same here. The Israelis are, are, are a, a population that's dominant, that's separated itself from the others, that really lives in an apartheid regime. And they're not going to voluntarily dismantle that. Why would they? So we have to create a Palestinian with critical Israelis like me supporting them, a Palestinian alliance with the international civil society. Like the anti-apartheid struggle, churches played a huge role. You know, churches, now the, the Jewish community, a lot of the young people in the American Jewish community connected to the Jewish Voice of Peace and other groups are really beginning to wean themselves away from Israel and are becoming very critical. Um, you know, so churches, labor unions, you know, academic groups, uh, political groups, and the job, their job is to change American government policy. You see, so you from the bottom, you create uh, a Palestinian and Israeli-supported movement for one state because we have to lead that. You're not going to liberate Palestine from, from Chicago. We have to leave that, lead that vision of a one state, but, a, but, other, but we need governments because we can't do it ourselves, and the governments are not on our side, obviously. And so your job as an American civil society is to – now you have a program, one state that's missing today. We're missing the end game. That's what we're supplying. And then with that focus and direction, we're asking the groups that are organized here. You have BDS groups. You have all kinds of, of lobby groups to then go to your government and begin to change policy. I'll give you one tiny example. In, o in Iowa – there's a whole movement of people all through Iowa to confront the presidential candidates that will be flooding the state with questions about Palestine. Where do you stand on Palestine-Israel? And, and they have their schedules, and they'll confront them city after city after city and make Palestine uh, and, and, and this whole issue of, uh, of uh, freedom and, uh, and peace in Palestine-Israel a central campaign issue. You know, that's the kind of civil society work that will be done. And unfortunately, as we know, the Israeli Jewish public is not going to be a part of it. Well, do you think anything is going to change with U.S. politicians? Their enthusiasm to run the two-state solution up a flagpole time and time again is, seems right. unquenchable. It is, it, it is it, and you can do it for mm. two terms. It's not mm. a problem. They've been doing it for years. Yeah, but I think I think uh, it's because um, we, the stakeholders, Palestinians and critical Israelis, haven't given an end game yet. To be, so you've got the U.S. campaign for Palestinian rights. You have Jewish Voice for Peace. You have Sabil. You have a lot of organizations that support the Palestinian Israeli cause, but they don't have they don't have an end game. And that's why everybody falls back on the two-state all the time because there's nothing. So we're saying let's leave the two-state. It's dead, gone. Let's stop talking about it. And here's where we should go. And if we can do that, um, we'll give, I think, politicians 
somewhere to go. And don't, and if the politicians here in the United States feel supported by critical Jews, young a young Jewish population, so you know they're not going to be accused of being anti-Semitic. This whole thing that Israel is trying to encourage, the idea that if you're critical of Israel, you're anti-Semitic. Well, I think I think the young generation of Jews rejects that, and that'll give space to politicians to be more critical of Israel than they've been until now. I'm talking with Jeff Halper. He is the co-founder of the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions, and I wanted to say something about that. Uh, mm-hmm. What you, if people go on the website right. of the Israeli Committee of, uh, Against right. Home Demolitions, they can see monthly reports, That's things right. getting knocked down. Um, yeah. What is happening? I mean, our our political position, of course, rests on our resistance to occupation. And uh, especially we focused over the years on the issue of house demolitions. Israel has demolished about 55,000 Palestinian homes, only in the occupied territory, thousands more inside Israel, but only in the occupied territory, 55,000 homes since 1967, and almost none of them for security reasons. This isn't the houses of terrorists. These are houses of normal people. Israel simply for 50 years has frozen Palestinian building. You have kids. Your kids have kids. You have to provide somewhere for them to live. It's a human right. And Israel says no because it's trying to force the Palestinians out of the country. And so if you build a home on your own land without a building permit because you can't get a building permit, you get your home demolished, which is a tremendously traumatic experience for Palestinians. So imagine 55,000 families are without homes. And if you're against home demolitions, uh, do you try to stop them? Of course. That's what we try to do. We don't we, – uh, yes, we, we – I mean, you don't see me on the radio, but I'm built pretty huskily, um, you know, because I get in front of bulldozers. You know, we, we physically try to stop the demolition of homes, and we get arrested all the time. But then we raise money. I mean, I, I raise money here in the States in my speaking tours and, and so on. We raise money and from the people, and we rebuild homes that have been demolished as political acts of resistance. We've built about 200 homes in the last 20 years. Now, if you think about 200 homes out of 55,000, that's kind of meaningless. But if you think about it as 200 joint acts of Palestinian-Israeli resistance, because it's illegal to rebuild homes, um, uh, and giving these families homes again that occasionally are redemolished. Demolition order is forever, but n- most of the time stay. If you think about it in that sense, our resistance to home demolitions is a very meaningful form of joint resistance to occupation. Jeff Halper is co-founder of the Israeli Committee Against Home Demolitions. He co-founded it in 1997. He's an anthropologist. You can see him speak in Oak Park tomorrow night at the Euclid Avenue Methodist Church. And if you want more information, you can get it for Committee for a Just Peace in Israel-Palestine. Their website is cjpip.org. Thanks very much for joining us, Jeff Halper. Thank you for having me on.
Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the Festival of Films from Iran. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Film contributor Milo Stalik is off this week. We recruited Weekend's Passports Nari Safavi to do double duty and talk about some films that are near and dear to his heart. Films from Iran. Yeah, surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I sub for Milos and I inject a lot of Iranian stuff in. <laughs> so, uh, we all knew it was going to happen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But no, this is one of the projects that's uh, most uh, close and dear to my heart, both as the uh, Iranian Film Festival, uh, Festival Films from Iran, going on at the Gene Sisko Film Center, and a film that's made by a, by a favorite filmmaker of mine about a subject who is a, who is a good friend of mine. So I've just got, it's got my signature all over. And Barbara Sheras is here. She's director of this uh, programming at the Siskel Film Center. Good to see you. Long time no see. Thanks for inviting me. 29 years of this uh, Festival of Films from Iran. That's That's terrific. That's right. Um, We were the first Festival of Films from Iran in the U.S. And uh, before they even were got hot. That's right. Now they're they're smoking hot. (laughs) Tell us about something uh, that I I saw one that – um, it seems like the main character is the devil. What's going on in the... In the <laughs> oh, that, that's a, an amazingly audacious film. It's called Pig. And, um, the, I stand corrected. It's not the devil. It's Pig. <laughs> well, well uh, there, there are a few um, pretty bizarre costumes in this film. And uh, the premise is that um, the, someone, a serial killer, is targeting the filmmakers in Iran who have been banned so those are the more, um, wow. you know, the, 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 the more liberal ones. And um, this one filmmaker who's uh, banned largely because his films are, you know, sleazy slasher films uh, is insulted because uh, one filmmaker after another is uh, offed and no one's paying any attention to him. He's wondering why he's not targeted. And so um, the plot gets wilder and wilder. And, you know, meanwhile, there are a few subplots, including that this, uh, this non-targeted filmmaker is uh, reduced to, uh, under an assumed name, directing television commercials. And there's a, a Fellini-esque bug spray commercial that has a song and dance number that is a hoot. I mean, you won't believe that this is an Iranian film. Uh, <laughs> you are selling it. That, is, yeah. well, that sounds like fun. Yeah, it's totally a great am. job. Great job. Uh, uh, there, there are several really good films in there, and but one that we're opening up with tomorrow and uh, is uh, is a documentary uh, called Mouth Harp in the Minor Key, and uh, I want to maybe have. The symbolism of Moth Harp uh, being explained. Uh, it's a film about the great film scholar Hamid Nafisi and the great filmmaker and documentarian uh, in Iran in the 60s. Uh, can you tell us what does the uh, symbolism of Moth Harp? Hey, Amid. How are Hi. you? Good to see you. Good to see you again, yes. Uh, well, I think we should ask Mariam, but uh, <laughs> my, my take on the Moth Harp is, is uh, from childhood, I have had a Moth Harp. Um, which I think in the old days they used to call it Jews harp, 
as well. It's a it's a small little. Dwang 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 dwang. Dwang dwang dwang. Yes, and and the Iranians had a, a particular um, um, rhythm. Uh, and melody that they produce with it. And so as a child, I learned to do that, and I carried that with me as one of the mementos of the, of the homeland. So Mariam, I think, saw that in, in, in our house, and, and so I, maybe we should ask Mariam how, how she read the symbol. And Mariam Sapari is here. She's the documentary filmmaker who made uh, the film about uh, Marth Harper in the minor key about Amit Nafizi. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks well, t- for having me. <laughs> now, uh, tell us what the, the, the thing everybody wants to know about the Marth Harp. About Marth Harp. Um, to me, it's a very sensitive and um, intimate, you know, um, um, instrument. Oh, you want me to talk about Mouth Harp itself, the, yeah, the sure. musical why, why, instrument. <laughs> why did you name it? That, that, uh, why did you name the film? Yeah, because I, I noticed that um, every time Hamid is under pressure, um, um, he uses this instrument, m- musical instrument, as um, as a um, what you may call it, as a um, as something to. Uh, play with and relieve um, stress. And, yeah, yep. exactly for relieving his his stress. So um, and it's very intimate and it's uh, it's very simple and easy and it's kind of associated with the childhood with his childhood. So once mm-hmm. um, I I was in Esfahan and I was talking to Hamid's sister. Um, his other sister mentioned that um, he used to play this. Um, in musical instrument uh, called Zamburak in Farsi, which means little bee, <laughs> if you want to yeah. transliterate it. <laughs> so, um, so I thought it might be a um, specific name for the movie because um, with minor key, I wanted to mention this um, kind of uh, feeling um, being um, far from homeland and um, mm. having kind of uh, nostalgic feeling about um, uh, I think what you said I think what you said is uh, about its uh, its intimacy is really uh, important because it is an instrument that you that I play with my hands but also and your it, lips it as involves well. my lips and <laughs> yeah. my breath exactly so very you, intimate you have your whole it's an embodied instrument exactly and I remember as a kid when I was on the way home from school I would be playing this outside as I, as I uh, got to the house, and my mom used to say that she could hear me from the street. Uh, oh, I didn't know n- that. <laughs> nearing the house. <laughs> wow. So, Beautiful. <laughs> it's so, your signature. It's, yeah, your yes. signature. Now, there's also the, uh, the element of exile uh, into all of this, too, which I know is very prominent in your work, I mean, right. Cinema of exile and accented right. cinema, as you call that. That's a coin. That's and for people who don't know, Hamid is a professor at Northwestern, and he is the author of the most definitive work on Iranian cinema, the social history of Iranian cinema, and uh, other prominent works on Iranian cinema. Right, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I, I published three books on, 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 on exile and diaspora culture and media, um, particularly focused one book on the Iranians in Los Angeles uh, in, in the days that Iranians in Los Angeles were not being taken, especially their popular culture, their radio, television programs, films, dances, uh, 
magazines, newspapers, uh, grocery stores, all of these, uh, the, the Iranian ethnic community was creating in, in L.A. was not being taken very seriously. And so this book really laid the foundation um, of taking seriously the, the Iranian uh, culture and media. Can you imagine in the first decade after the revolution, Iranians produced 92 periodicals in Persian in Los Angeles? 92. That's wow. it. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it. It was a very robust time, and you were absolutely right. I, I was in Los Angeles at that time, and it wasn't being taken seriously. And some of it deserved not to be taken seriously. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, <That's right. laughs> but, but, uh, but I also remember uh, that at that time you were at UCLA, and you also organized one of the first Iranian film festivals at UCLA. So uh, it was yes. almost uh, at this, and and it made a huge huge splash in the community at that time uh, because that uh, for the first time uh, in a decade, Iranians in Los Angeles were getting films from Iran to come to LA to be able to watch and that was really a, and you were subject by, to a lot of protests. People were calling you an agent of the Islamic Republic for bringing films from Iran. Yeah, Mariam so, has some of that in her film, right? Right, yeah. right. And, and, and also Barbara has been accused of that too. I know some of the same people who protested you at that time, they called the they called the Gene Sisko Film Center an outpost of the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, in some of the documentaries that they have produced, it was really an am- mm. amazing thing mm. uh, to be a uh, to to have witnessed that. But uh, uh, but anyway, so uh, what what are you? Uh, what do you think about uh, what did you think about this uh, when some uh, a filmmaker named Mariam Sapehri came and said, "Look, you're a scholar, but I want to make a film about your life." <laughs> what did you think about that as a scholar? Yeah, actually, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, other yeah. documentaries made about scholars. <laughs> right, I, I have that question of her actually now. <laughs> I do remember. <laughs> Why did you choose me? Because of yeah. Um, from among all the prophets, why choose Berges, huh? <laughs> now, I remember you said, um, I'm not a superstar, and I'm not into politics, and why do you want to make this movie, and who do you expect audience, your, your audience will be? And I said, that's my problem. (laughs) 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 And it still is. (laughs) But I'm hoping you'll you'll bring some audience and you'll you'll have some audience uh, tomorrow. You're doing this twice. You're showing the film yes. twice and yes. appearing twice. Saturday and, and Sunday, uh-huh. yes. So we'll give Mariam a start here in Chicago. <laughs> a good a good send off. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There will be it will be also uh, tomorrow night will be uh, Hamid's birthday. Actually, happens to be his birthday. Oh, so happy we're birthday, having Hamid. A, we're having a little dessert reception, oh, wow. uh, courtesy wow. of Mala Muslim American uh, uh, Leadership Alliance. They're sponsoring a dessert reception. We're going to have a birthday cake for Hamid and all of that. So. Uh, so it's going to be a fun evening. I hope people turn Well, out. I mean, it sounds like you are a pretty perfect candidate for this kind of film. You, you are somebody who has had a foot in two worlds, and you have um, – right. you've negotiated it successfully. Yeah, I think that's, the, that's what uh, Mariam has done well. I think she's um, – uh, her film covers both sides of the exilic divide. She comes to me, to my family, uh, uh, and, and shows us uh, here. And she also goes to my parents 
uh, home in, in, in Iran. And, and in, in Sounds tri- like your mom still wants you to come back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she does. Although in the meantime, she's passed away uh, yeah. last year. So um, she was uh, sort of the, the the magnet that brought all. And the, the old back. home is no longer there either because it's been turned into condominiums and uh, yeah, so or being torn down. And they're torn down, they're exactly. discussing what to do with yeah, it. Yes, exactly, exactly. yeah. But Hamid, I mean, there will be some other things, some films that you produced uh, from your own experiments back in the sixties. You were in a hippie commune, and you were been, that is true. You've done things with people who started the internet. So yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. Actually, I should mention since you brought that up is that uh, one of those people who is often times credited as the father of the internet in quotation uh, Vince Cerf uh, uh, helped to fund Mariam yeah film, exactly right? I'm very um, grateful yeah. I've always been grateful to him <laughs> are there some embarrassing pictures of him in the film no this film the <laughs> <laughs> as, far as, as far as I know he didn't do anything uh, embarrassing at least in public <laughs> <laughs> But no, this film, it focuses on a hippie commune that I lived in uh, before I met, uh, before I went to UCLA. This is at USC, and, and I used the, what was then the latest um, portable, the first portable um, portapack, Sony portapack video recorder to record this uh, commune. And it was at the time that the commune was undergoing some changes, so there's a lot of discussions and debates as to who's wrong, who's right, and it just shows, uh, uh, you know, what a freewheeling um, um, commune uh, is subjected to when Absolutely. when things don't go right. So it's we're going to show that, right? Yes, I, I think it's <laughs> fascinating that you called it Ellis Island, because uh, the, the, the views represented in that film and the different characters that come forward in the course of your, you know, sort of journey through the hallways and bedrooms yes. is very funny. Yes, and, not, and many of these people who talk are not uh, foreign, but the reason it was called Ellis Island is because when I first went there, we had some guy from China, we had me from Iran, we had a, uh, a woman from uh, Fra- France, we had two Dutch uh, people, so it was really a foreign uh, an Ellis Island, literally. Yeah. yeah. Well, it'll be hippie communes and devils and uh, internet. Also, uh, internet founders. <laughs> it's the 29th annual Festival of Films from Iran. It runs through March 3rd at the Gene Siskel Film Center. And tomorrow night and uh, Sunday night, you will see Hamid Nafisi and his film uh, Mouth Harp in Minor Key. Thanks very much for joining us, Miriam Saperi and uh, Barbara Sheras and Hamid Nafisi, for talking about the 29th annual Festival of Films from Iran. And Nari Safavi will be back with us in just a moment yes. with a regular edition of Weekend Passport. We'll talk about a play, a comedic play about ice. Absolutely. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for Weekend Passport, where we let you know how to have an international good time on the weekend. Our global citizen friend, Nari Safavi, continues his journey through the arts now. Good to see you, Nari. Uh, good day, Jerome. It's good to be here again. And we're going to go to the Ireland, to the Irish islands and the, and the famine period of Irish Ireland. The, uh, Declan O'Rourke is going to chronicle the Great Irish Famine tomorrow at the Old Town School of Folk Music. Absolutely. He seems to be very much inspired by the music of that period and the melancholy of that period. And I believe we have a little segment of his music. When he met her at the dance... She had flowers in her hair There was no girl in this land Who could have stood next to her there And there everyone could see How he loved her instantly Though he had nothing to give her But his poor boy's hopes and dreams Well, he danced with her that summer Till it showed on her sweet face As she was taken by the warmth of him And all his gentle ways Then he swore to her his love was true that's Declan O'Rourke, and he'll be at the Old Town School of Folk Music tomorrow at 7.30. The Irish American Heritage Center, supported by the Consulate of Ireland in Chicago, is uh, bringing that uh, to us, and that sounds like he'll be uh, chronicling the Great Irish Famine tomorrow. Absolutely. It's gotten great reviews from several publications. Uh, Where are we going next? We're going. We're actually going back to America and the immigrant experience of America. There was an interesting play that is play that is uh, that is going to be performed tomorrow called Icebox, and it has to do with the ICE, the immigration services that uh, is in charge of uh, deporting the immigrants who are here uh, in an undocumented or illegal uh, uh, status, yeah, you might say. And uh, it's a very interesting one-man play about that kind of an experience. With us is the writer and director of Icebox at the Annoyance Theater, Donald Reyes. Reyes, how are you? Nice to meet you. Hi, how are you? And uh, the man who performs it, Rich Alfonso, is here as well. Thanks for joining us, Rich. Thank you for having us. What are you guys thinking? You guys did something. You did a funny play about ice. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's so much funny Donald, stuff happening. What's about going it. on? Right. Uh, well, it's really interesting because uh, Rich had approached me about wanting to do a solo show. And um, whenever I start these processes with uh, one-man shows, I tend to ask them um, kind of like, where is your point of honesty? Where do you want to start from? What, what, do you, what is inspiring you? What, what do you want to tell, basically? What is your story? And Rich came, and he had a bunch of pictures that his dad had just <laughs> scanned. And they're all old pictures of like his life from um, not only himself, but his whole family coming from the Dominican Republic. And, uh, you know, just being myself a Filipino American and understanding that immigration uh, just process and what my parents have gone through um, kind of like prompted these writing assignments for Rich um, coming, stemming from those photos. Um, something like a picture from his, of his father uh, and or his mother and and, and what is this picture about? What do you see beyond this? And it kind of started from there. Yeah, and um, really the, the the idea for the show was I wanted to do something uh, that talked about myself, 
uh, being the, the, the child of immigrants, but also talking about the immigrant experience, experience as I know it through uh, my parents. While we were in this process, um, it was probably about December or so, um, you know, in the many, uh, you know, new sound bites that came through in this current climate of, you know, the administration, and everything was the talk about, you know, birthright citizenship and whether or not the administration was contemplating reviewing whether or not children who were born in the states to children to to immigrants w- could be considered valid, you know, citizens of the United States and. To me, that just seemed like the the craziest, you know, unimaginable thing to talk about. And I brought that to John Old and we kind of talked about it. You know, what would be that kind of a world where, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you know, these ICE de- uh, detention centers are happening. They are very much a thing that is currently going on. What would happen if we would get to that extent where it's like now we're extending it to, you know, the children that, of immigrants that are born here and what that would look like. Um, so that is definitely a framed device of the show. And what that does that opens myself up to kind of look in towards my own life uh, and the lives of like my parents and then coming here, their journey, their hardships uh, and all done through uh, a comedic take or as yeah. comedic as we can yeah. uh, in, in, you know, a heavy subject. Yeah. So you are doing, you are basically performing a, a character called Rich Alfonso. Yeah. Uh, I mean, essentially. And, and you sometimes switching off to other characters. Yeah. So uh, I am playing myself, but, you know, in, in any type of theatrical context, you know, you are right. doing a character. I'm playing a, a a presentational theatrical version of myself, which, I mean, I tend to already think of myself as pretty theatrical <laughs> yeah. as Not it is. Really. Uh, just, just how I was raised. Um, <laughs> very performative. Very performative, yes. And uh, and then through that, I also uh, I, I I come up as other characters. You know, I, I portray my mother, I portray my father, uh, other siblings, uh, even other characters that I wrote specifically for the show. So it, it's it's me speaking, but also speaking through the people that I know uh, through direct anecdotes or experiences, or also kind of my imagination of you know what my mother had to go through, what my father had to go through, what the uh, you know uh, average I guess you know Latin American immigrant would have to go through where's the funny stuff coming from <laughs> that's a good question i'm still sure. trying to figure that out no uh, <laughs> um I, a lot of it is uh you know just through uh, a, a character portrayal um i uh, am a very big you know performance artist in terms of like doing characters uh i've i've done this for you know the past couple of years in, in my career uh you know in the comedy community at io chicago uh the second city uh the annoyance which is where the the show is going to be performed at right. um so a lot of it is done just through uh just like the 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 nuances the uh the the social tics and everything that makes you know people who they are uh, should we hear some um, I can, you know, do a, a bit of the, a, a, a monologue. So um, yeah. I guess I'll, I'll put a little bit of a context into it. So one of the devices, and John will kind of mentioned it, is that when I'm performing the show, uh, there are uh, going to be pictures that are going to be coming up of like my family and, and myself, and, you know, uh, and. As these pictures come up, I kind of relive a memory or recreate a memory or a situation. There's one photo that comes up specifically of my father when he first visited the States before I was born. Um, I'll just do a little snippet of that right now. Okay, Pedrito, are you ready to take the picture? Okay, papa. Oh, mira como esta esta cosa ahora. Look at this beautiful dock with all these boats in front of us. 
Oh my God, can you believe all these white people here in the United States? They don't use these boats for travel or for work. They just sit around and drink little fancy drinky drinkies and they have a little cocktail and everything and they just get all nice and sunburned. But you know, that's not going to happen to me, Papa, because I'm a chocolate bien, bien, okay? Oh my God, but you know what? One day, this is going to be just like me. I'm going to come to the United States, and I'm going to be just like these people, enjoying a nice drink, enjoying a nice bowl, and I'm going to make a life for myself and for my family. Hey, make sure you get the picture right, okay? I don't want you to, to make me look like I don't look like a don't right here, papa. <laughs> <laughs> Rich Alfonso. Yeah. Rich Alfonso performing some of Icebox. It's going to be at the Annoyance Theater tomorrow and then again on February 16th, yep. a while from now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's uh, I can, I, Okay, I can see where the funny's coming from. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out whether that was a good Cuban accent or a Dominican accent. I'm not oh. quite sure yet. It's a little bit of both, yeah. actually. It's a little bit of it's both. a little bit of both, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. No, that was very well performed. But, uh, you know, of course, you don't have to be specific about all of this. But let me ask you, Joel and... Uh, Jonald, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, a question about the creative process. Oh, sure. Uh, here is Rich. He comes to you. He yeah. has an idea in his mind. He is both writing it and he's going to pre- performing it. Yeah. What is the role of a director in all of the, in all of that? It could just be a one man package. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah. Um, for these one person shows, I I tend to sometimes play more of um, a guiding light. Uh, sometimes uh, actors will come, actor writers come, and they kind of don't have anything at all. And um, even though Rich had these pictures, he kind of was just like not sure like what to do with it. What what is how do I frame these things? What what where do I what do I even say? And so uh, I would just uh, assign him a bunch of writing um, assignments and give him these prompts of what these uh, things can can stand for. Like what what are your thoughts on immigration? What are your thoughts about your father alone? What are your thoughts about your your parents' marriage? All these things just because. Um, you know, like we have our own personal experiences and when people want to do one person shows, it's a message. What do you want to tell to the audiences that you feel so true to yourself? What is their honest place that you want to share with everybody? Because there's going to be people coming out that don't know who you are. Sounds like a purgatory too. Right. Yeah, it really is. Well, in a, in a way, I always say that uh, as a director, I become kind of your therapist uh, right, where it's right. like uh, we just dig in deep about your life uh, and, it, and we're in a confined space. And basically we, we find things that you feel are are really important to share with other people. So yeah, that's where it kind of stems from. And mm-hmm. and then yeah, and then there's sure sure enough the blocking comes into play, the acting and the motivation for um, their characters that they play. So a lot of my job is to make sure that it's come together nice and clean as well as being able to um, portray this this huge um, character lifestyle that you know rich is of a person and i think what we have here is is just a beautiful play about not only um this detainee that's uh trying to prove his citizenship but also just his his family story i think that's something that's so relatable especially for uh immigrants today i like my own parents when when he would show me something of his parents' like marriage i i was it was so relatable to me i was like yeah that's why my parents too, dude. Like I could feel that as well. It's it's something of um, uh, being a performer in this in this city for the past couple of years. Uh, I when I wanted to do the solo show, and I've been wanting to do one for a long time, but I just didn't know what to say, what to do, what would be the idea of it. Um, I 
almost feel it as like a as an ownership and responsibility to you know use the platform that I have or, or use any platform that I can get to where I can uh, inject basically uh, my story and you know get people to know a perspective or uh, you know a side that they may have never experienced before or hear a voice they've never yeah. heard before. Uh, and that was something that was very important to me to get across uh, for an audience. Rich Alfonso is performing Icebox at the Annoyance Theater tomorrow on February 2nd and then again on February 16th. The Annoyance Theater, of course, is at 851 West Belmont. And a great to see you and meet you, Rich. And uh, Jonald Gen- uh, Reyes, thanks for joining us as well, the writer and director. Uh, it's been, I, I hope, great things for your show. I hope you can... Uh, Get it, get it going and really roll with it. Thank, Thank you, so, you much. so much. I appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having us. Nari Safavi, thanks for another fine edition of Weekend Passport, and we'll see you next week. Great, uh, great to be here again. Monday on Worldview, we'll talk about the elections in El Salvador with Oscar Chacon of Alianza Americas. Hope you can join us Monday for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ.